This morning we turn to the account of John in his gospel about the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read this account. I'm going to say a couple of things about it in the introduction, and then we have two major points to look at in this portion of God's Word. So follow with me as I read. I'm going to read verse 16, and then I'll read down to the 30th verse. Verse 16 of chapter 19 says, So he, that is Pilate, delivered him, that is Jesus, over to them, that is the soldiers, to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to a place called the place of a skull, which is which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this description, so this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, that was the local language, in Latin, that was the imperial language, the language of Rome, and in Greek, that was the commercial language, uh, the common language of the empire. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit or gave up his spirit. I think the first thing the reader is likely to notice about John's account of the crucifixion, even though it sounded long in my reading of it, I took my time, read it slowly, but the fact is it's a brief account. If you include verse 16 and then go down to verse 30, it's 15 verses. And of all the Gospels, it's the, the shortest of the four Gospels. And every one of them exceeds the length, at least by 10 verses, if not 15 verses. And so it's a brief account. But it's also an account that tells us a great deal. And it tells us a great deal about things that the other Gospels do not tell us anything about. Like uh, Jesus 
making provision for his mother. Or don't read that in any of the other accounts. Um, there are things unique to it. There are also things in common with the other Gospels. And there's things in the other Gospels that John tells us nothing about. It seems to me that John is looking to focus upon Jesus more than the other Gospels. Because he tells us nothing about the crowds. He tells us nothing about the way they mocked him. Come down off the cross if you're the Son of God. All those things that we read about in the other accounts. John tells us nothing about There's a real Christological focus. Even the soldiers that are taking his garments, they're his garments that they're trafficking in. And uh, so Jesus is central to everything that John is bringing to us. Now, the fact that it's brief probably has something to say to preachers. You can say a lot in few words. So this morning, I'm going to try to take a note from John's Gospel, if possible. And I'm going to do my best to, first of all, give you a brief summary of the account. It's a brief account, hopefully a brief summary. And then secondly, I want to say something about the big significance of the account. So the summary and the significance. A brief account and a big significance of the account. Well, let's look briefly at the summary. Pilate, having given in to the Wishes of the Jewish leaders, their desire to see Jesus put to death, issues forth the sentence and gives Jesus over to the soldiers. But though they're in custody, he's in custody, in custody of these soldiers, what John wants to emphasize is the fact that he went out. And different than the other Gospels that have, at least at one point, Simon is Cyrene impressed to do the work of carrying the cross. Jesus went out, we're told, bearing his own cross. Now we need to understand that the bearing of the cross is not the entirety of that big piece of wood that's staked into the ground. That's already out there in Golgotha. They have those stakes that are there. What Jesus is carrying is what's called the transverse beam. It has a it has a name in the original. I won't give it to you. No, I'll give it to you. Patty, Patty Bullum. Patty Bullum is what it was called. Uh, that's the transverse beam. That's where his nail, the nails is, is going to be into the, that piece of wood that extends out. And um, that's what he's carrying out to the place of crucifixion. Probably this was an area in the north of the city where Jesus was um, um, leaving from likely Pilate's residence, which was the former house of Herod the Great, which is also in the north part of the city. So there was a a brief aspect of the city that they passed through till they got through the city gates and went out to this place that was called the Place of the Skull, Golgotha. The reason it was called the place of the skull is sort of ar- it's argued about whether the place itself on a hill had a shape similar to a skull, some say. And others say it's the fact that that was the place of crucifixion, probably a lot of dead bodies out there, buried bodies, a lot of skulls to be found. We don't actually know why, but it's an intimidating um, name to it. Calvary is so much more gentle, so much more... Um, I mean, Golgotha just sounds tough, and it sounds rough, and it sounds um, almost frightening. The place of the skull. And yet a frightening thing occurs out in that very place where our Lord is led to be crucified. They nail his hands to the transverse beam. They hoist him up onto the cross. They put a, a placard called a titleist. Um, it's the assertion of the crimes that Jesus committed. What's his crime? What's he being crucified for? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate's intent is that any would-be king, any would-be insurrectionist, revolutionary, would take up the cause of any rebellion against the empire of Rome, would see this man, whose name is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and any pretension for kingship or to follow others who would be rival kings to Caesar, would note, that's where insurrectionists end up. That's where you end up if you claim to be the king of the Jews. 
We read about a debate that took place among the Jews and Pilate, whether that's a sufficient titles, sufficient statement of accusations, because they contend this man said he's the king of the Jews, but to say king of the Jews is to give him too much honor. And in their mind, that would have been implying he is in fact the king of the Jews. And you know, that's in fact, I think, divine intent. Jesus is king of the Jews, even when he dies upon the cross. We have a hymn in our hymnal that begins with the words, um, Oh, I can't think of the beginning of the words, but it speaks of Jesus upon the cross, our king. Those are the words, upon the cross, our king. Remember the wise men that came from the east, they came to Jerusalem and said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Wait a minute, can you have a, a born king of the Jews, a king in a cradle? Yeah, you can, you do. You have Jesus born a king, and Jesus dies a king. And his kingly identity is in all of the account. So you have this debate that transpires, and then you have the dividing and taking up lots for his garments. You have the soldiers in verses 23 and 24 disposing of our Lord's garments, both his outer garments, pearl, and the inner garment, that one piece that was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And then the scene switches back to the crowd from, the, from, from Pilate and the Jews arguing about the, about the titleists. You have the soldiers dividing his garments. Then you have the standard bystanders among whom were these women and among whom was our Lord's mother. And we have Jesus disposing of his mother providing for her as he's now going to be taken from her, saying to the disciple whom he loved, Behold your mother. And then from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And then you have the statement that Jesus, knowing all was now finished, he fulfills the scriptures with the words, I thirst. And then we see the jar of sour wine that was given to him on a sponge on a hyssop branch being held up to his mouth and then Jesus receiving that wine declares it is finished bows his head and gives up his spirit that's the account that's the account I read it to you I attempted to expand upon it just a little bit a lot more I could say about it but why it's a simple account I think it's an account more to be considered than to be necessarily defined with multiplicity of words. I think it's an account that we are to think about what John is looking to convey to us. And it is my belief that when we understand this account that John gives in these words, and we see this account that John gives in these words in the light of the entirety of John's gospel, that John is presenting to us in these words, in this account, something of a summary of what he has been underscoring and he has been stating over and over again throughout his gospel. I'm not sure where he began to work from the crucifixion account back to all the other events of our Lord's life or from the other events and now he's going to summarize it in his description of the crucifixion. But it does seem to me that you do have a clear relationship of the mission of Jesus as John defines it over and over again in his gospel, now being presented in terms of the culminating act of our Lord's obedience to his Father, the Father who sent him, who sent him to go to the cross and die as the Passover lamb, as the one who voluntarily lays down his life for the sheep, as the good shepherd. Those themes that we read about over and over again in John's Gospel come to surface once more as he presents to us this account of the crucifixion. And there are five themes that are presented, and I don't think I'm going to get to them all this morning. We may, but I don't think so. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're going to try to get to as many as we can this morning and take up from there, God willing, next week. Number one, 
we have the theme of his control and authority over all things. Whatever we think about Jesus dying upon the cross and the things that happened to him in this crucifixion account, John wants it understood who's in control. Who is it that possesses authority? Jesus is in control. He is sovereign. He's running the show. He's running even the events that are happening here. Secondly, there's a theme of his regal identity, his kingship, his royalty, that he is the king of the Jews. He is the Davidic king. Thirdly, is the theme of productivity or his fruit-bearing ministry. Early on it said unless the seed of grain goes into the earth and dies, it stands alone, but if it dies it bears much fruit. Well, the death of Jesus is a fruit-bearing ministry. It is productive of great results. Then there is the theme of Scripture's fulfillment, that all these things took place to fulfill what the Scriptures had said. And the final theme is the theme of his victory, his triumph in and over his enemies in dying upon the cross. So those are five themes that I believe we find in John's Gospel throughout the length and breadth of it, and five themes that he he brings to bear upon this account of his crucifixion. Let's begin. Okay, let's begin. First of all, the theme of Jesus' control and authority over all things. That he's running the show. He's the sovereign here. It's not Pilate. It's not Caesar. It's not Roman authority. It's not the soldiers. Ultimately, it is Jesus. When we think of the passion narrative as the things that happened to him, things that others did to him, the things that he suffered at the hands of the Jews, or the things that he suffered at the hands of the Romans, or the things that he suffered at the hands of the crowds, and he suffered at the hands of those who mocked him. Um, John doesn't present that to us. He presents not Jesus being acted upon, but Jesus acting. He's not the victim. He's the actor. There is his performance as the sent one from God who came from heaven to do the Father's will, executing that will actively. And we think of the passive obedience of Jesus, suffering what others did to him. No, no. John says he's, he's, the, he's the actor. And it begins at verse 17. I mean, he's in custody. Pilate is given the sentence. He's to be crucified. He's delivered him over to the soldiers. They take him. And then verse 17 says, he went out. He went out. Not he was let out. He was dragged out. He was pulled out in chains. He went out. And not only did he go out, but he goes out bearing his own cross. Now again, I believe this is the last gospel that was written. And I do believe that that's fairly historically valid. I think it's pretty much understood by many people or most people, most scholars, that this was the final gospel. And I think it's fairly well appreciated that John was in possession of the other gospels. He was not ignorant of Mark and Matthew and Luke. He knew those gospels. And he knew that Simon of Cyrene was one who came to be impressed to take Jesus' cross. Now, I'm not exactly certain why. And again, I think there are people that say, well, he was just so beat up as a result of the scourging. He had no strength to carry his own cross. But, you know, many people were scourged and carried their own cross. I would find it very difficult to think that Jesus was simply tapped out of strength or that he went to the cross in such a depleted condition that, I mean, death was sort of inevitable. Because the picture that's given of his death is that he gave up his spirit. He's acting. He said, no man takes my life from me. I give it up. 
I don't think Jesus died because of physical depletion of bodily strength. I know that the cross had to have taken a lot out of him. Scourging, if it was the worst form of Roman scourging, had to have taken a lot out of him. But we don't know that he had the worst form of Roman scourging. It doesn't seem as though Pilate was looking to Pilate on or to make things hard for Jesus. He said he knew he was delivered up for envy of the Jews. He knew that there was no guilt in him. He wanted to have him scourged or beaten and then released. So evidently he didn't want he didn't want to see a fatality come about at the at the flogging post. So just why Simon of Cyrene was impressed to carry his cross? May have been he fell. I mean the Roman stations of the Roman Catholic stations of the cross have him falling at three points. We don't know that he fell at all. But yeah, that's what the you know the tradition is. May have fallen. May have been the reason that Simon of Cyrene was asked to carry the cross, we don't know. Maybe it was that the Romans who were fine at playing games. We're going to see even in the matter of the, of the taking of his garments and of the, of the casting of lots for the, for the tunic. Uh, there was game season for them. This was great fun for the soldiers. Uh, they had led him out with a robe and crown of thorns and they had, were mocking him. Maybe they felt the king of the Jews shouldn't be carrying his own transverse uh, but beam? Well, someone else do it. You, you, you're one of his subjects. Maybe they were mocking. Simon of Cyrene, we're going to press you to carry his cross because you're one of the subjects of your king. And it was great fun. Could have been that. I mean, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But John's emphasis is he carried his own cross. Right? He's in control of all that takes place. They could do nothing to him but what he will allow them to do. He was doing the Father's will. He told his disciples he could call the Father to send legions of angels and he would be delivered. But how else would the scriptures be fulfilled? He understood his mission. He understood what he was doing. He understood why he was there. He understood the things that must take take place. Because it was the will of his Father and it was part of his messianic work and it was that which scripture said would occur but he's in control every step of the way providing for his mother it's amazing isn't it I mean you think you're dying you're dying on a cross and you're filled with body racked with pain and you're doing all the right things you're just not centered in on yourself you would think at that point you got the right to think about yourself. You're in a bad way. You're, you're, you're on a cross to die. You can be concerned about yourself, but no. At every point, Jesus is concerned about his Father's will. At every point, he's concerned about his obedience. He's concerned about others. He's concerned about his church. On the night that he was betrayed, I love that word in Paul, our Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he said, take eat, this is my body which is given for you. On the night when he was betrayed, he could have been thinking about Judas. He could have been thinking about arrest. He could have been thinking about what was before him that he knew was the, the, the cup that he was to drink. And what is he thinking about? He's thinking about, do this in remembrance of me. He's thinking about his church in all ages, remembering him in this way that he gave of taking bread and the fruit of the of the cup, of the fruit of the grape and drinking of the cup. Not thinking of himself. He's in control. He has authority. He's sovereign over all things. He's even sovereign over death. Of course, that's John's emphasis really throughout the book, is that Jesus is in control. You know, Daniel thinks he's going out on a nice Judean summer day. He's going to take his spot under a, under a fig tree. He's just going to enjoy the beauty of the day. And he has no sense that any eye is upon him. And yet Jesus says to him, when you're under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. He didn't need to test anyone to testify of man. He himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew all people. He knew their thoughts. He knew their intentions. He knew their motivations. He knew their capabilities. He knew what they were able, capable of doing. 
He had control over the whole of his environment. Multiplying loaves and fish to feed the multitude. Walking on the sea. Power over death itself. Lazarus come forth. He had power over his own life as well. No one took his life from him. He gave it up. Bowed down his head, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's the first thing that surfaces in my mind, at least in this account. You just see the control that Jesus exercises over everything that takes place in his dying. He's not the passive victim. He's the active worker, working out our salvation in the things that he does, in the death that he dies for us. And then, of course, there is this matter of his regal identity, his royal identity. That's what the whole trial was about. This man said he was a king. We have no king but Caesar. Though Jesus made it clear the nature of his kingdom. My kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is from heaven. My kingdom is from God. My kingdom is from above. You'd have no authority over me, Pilate, except it would be given to you from heaven. My servants would fight if my kingdom was from this world. If it was an earthly kingdom, I'd have a standing army. And my servants would be fighting a battle of flesh and blood. They'd be armed to the teeth and they'd be taking lives, not just ears. They'd be taking lives. But Jesus says, my servants do not fight. It's not an earthly army. This is God's kingdom he's ushering in. This is the kingdom of light and of life and of love. This is the kingdom of truth and of righteousness. This is the kingdom of joy and the Holy Spirit. This is a kingdom where he reigns as Lord over minds and hearts. The great Christian confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a king worthy of our love, our allegiance. This again, he's, the, he's a king unlike any other. I mean, again, what do the kings of this world do? Well, they take as much as they can, whenever they can. They take power, they take land, they take houses, they take taxes, they take whatever they want. They seek more and more and more and more. Use and abuse for their own glory, their own honor. What does this king do? He's stripped bare of everything. Dies upon the cross without even a stitch of clothing. Everything was taken from him that he might give life to the world. I mean, the amazing thing, we live in a world, and it's not just one party, it's all the parties have of recent years taken as leaders of their party ideas of messiahship or of being like Jesus in some way, shape, or form. And the reality is none of them are like our Lord. None of them are worthy of those kinds of honors. It's ridiculous. They're self-interested, self-absorbed politicians concerned about their own advancement, their own wealth. Okay, maybe they want to see some things given to their friends and other people and the people they think are important, but it's self-interest, it's self-seeking. It's not Jesus. You don't see Jesus in politicians. You don't see Jesus in political parties. You don't see Jesus in the kingdoms of this world. The the parallels are, 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 are not there. This alone is the king worthy of our love, worthy of our full-hearted allegiance, worthy that we should live for him, we should die for him, we should honor him. His kingdom is the only kingdom that really is ultimate and eternal, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And Jesus' royal identity 
is seen really throughout the Gospels. It's emphasized again and again and again that even in his death, it's glory. His death is upon by crucifixion. Why? So that he might be lifted up. Lifted up. And that's a picture of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And you look at uh, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, the earthly king dies. And Isaiah says, I saw Yahweh. I saw the true king. And what is he like? He's high and he's lifted up. He's enthroned in majesty. His train filled the temple. This is his temple palace that he he dwelt in, or that he was seen in, in the vision. High and lifted up. Later on in Isaiah, you have a passage in chapter 57, it says, Thus says, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Who's that? It's Israel's God. How's he seen? Lifted up, high and lifted up. He's king over all things. And the very position of exaltation is what characterizes his majesty and his throne and his, and his authority and his regal identity. And even before the sufferings of Jesus described in chapter 53, the spies rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It says, let me get the exact words right, because I think I'm going to misquote it. Right before that section of prophecy in Isaiah 53 that we're very familiar with, the introductory words that sometimes we're not so familiar with are these, as this section is introduced, this matter of Jesus being pierced for our transgressions, the sufferings of the cross. It all begins in the words of verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Well, let's talk about the sufferings. He's lifted up in sufferings. Because you see, in his sufferings, there's the exaltation of the love of God. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's the exaltation of God's justice, that he might be just and yet the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. It's the exaltation of his wisdom. That in this way he does provide redemption for the world in ways that we never thought could ever be, ever be possible. Yet God in wisdom provides the answer to how we may be right with God and God would be eternally righteous in the way that he justifies sinners. And even the manner in which he was to die couldn't have been stoning. (laughs) That's why the Jews couldn't carry it out. I mean, yeah, the law said they probably couldn't carry it out but they did that stuff illegally they stoned Stephen why didn't they stone Jesus because Jesus must be lifted up he must be hoisted up upon that cross as an expression of his regal identity and then a placard is placed at the cross declaring Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews I think Pilate was just looking to really stick it to the Jews that he wouldn't listen to them saying change it, make it, he said he was the king of the Jews Pilate had his reasons not to change it but God had his reasons to let it stand he is the king of the Jews we have his control his authority over all things we have his regal identity as the king enthroned upon a cross. And then we have his fruit-bearing ministry. His fruit-bearing ministry. Again, you know, our Lord said, unless the seed first die in the earth, it abides alone. And a seed abides alone, but then it is when it is you know, when it is buried in the ground, it bears fruit. And, and his death anticipates the bearing of fruit. And, and I do believe there are two incidences that point to this. And the first has to do with the soldiers and the dividing of the garments and the taking lots for the seamless tunic. And, and then the second thing is, is, is John and Mary. 
Jesus giving Mary to be cared for by his disciple. How does that work? Well, let me suggest this. The scene moves away from Jesus only once. But it moves away from Jesus to bring the realization to our minds they took his garments. They took his garments. And we'd like to think of our Lord hanging upon the cross with his garments having been taken. He's, he's stripped of everything. It was, it was what, he, what happened. They took everything from him. Everything from him. divided among themselves to divide it among themselves and, and, and the quote that's given is from Psalm 22 and, and just turn there briefly Psalm 22 because you see there's two parts of this matter of the dividing up of the garments and of the take, casting of lots for the um, for what appears to be the outer garment you know it's the same word in the original, the garments, plural, and the seamless garment. But one seems to refer to the outer garments, could have been a belt, could have been a sash, could have been, you think of all the things the high priest wore, the an outer coat. So there were several of these items, and in the Roman way of doing things, when the soldiers led someone out to be crucified, his possessions could be taken. Could be taken. You know, they arrest you today, they take your belt, belt from you so you don't hang yourself in, in the jail. They, they, take, they take some items of clothing, shoelaces they take, but they always give them back. But here's things are taken, and they're not going to be given back. They're not going to be bequeathed to Jesus' parents or anything like that. They belong to the soldiers. It's part of uh, what they're enabled to do. Just power is the... The, the important thing in their minds so they take from Jesus everything and they're going to keep it for themselves and there were things you know even a poor carpenter possessed that could have been had utility could have had meaning could have had usefulness for these soldiers to have uh, but of course it's in the context of this suffering of this figure in Psalm 22 opens with the words that the Gospels quote, Matthew quotes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a picture that so well parallels the, the picture of the kind of death that a crucifixion would entail. All who see me mock, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's the mocking that we read about in the other Gospels. But there's trouble, and there's affliction. I'm poured out like water, verse 14 says. All my bones are out of joint. That happened when crucifixions took place. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. I read that already. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melted within my breast. Strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw again. The kind of dehydration that a crucifixion would, would, would occur. I can count all my bones, verse 17. They stare and they gloat over me. And then they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now the interesting thing here is that they took these outer garments that Jesus wore that were his possessions. They belonged to him. But he, it stripped from him. And it's given unto them. And it's given unto four. Four take them. And it's an interesting thing that it comes within the context of words that are spoken about the end of this whole thing being honor, glory, worship, and praise given to Israel's God. Uh, look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. This is the sufferer. Probably post-suffering. What's the result of it? What are the fruits of it? What results from all that he endures? Well, evangelism, telling of the name of God to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him. All ye offspring of Jacob, glorify him, stand in awe of him. Um, for he is not despised or abhorred the afflicted, affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him. He is heard when he cried to him. Maybe some indication of the fact that the crucifixion of the Son of God resulted in his, exalt, in his resurrection and exaltation. And that from you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Point is that it's the result of this massive suffering. Good comes to others. Provisions come to others. Blessing comes to others. And it comes to others in terms of the great blessings of praise and of worship and of making approach to God and standing in awe of God. But it comes from the ends of the earth. I wonder if the fact that there are four that are named as those who take the garments of Jesus is speaking of the fact that Jesus himself said, many will come from the east and the west and the north and the south to sit in the kingdom of God and to dine at the the gospel feast. All the directions of the globe will be those who will benefit from the death of the Son of God. Now again, that maybe seems to you fanciful, may seem to be a stretch, but it certainly seems that there's some kind of reason that John calls attention to this, some sort of a way in which the stripping away of everything that Jesus possesses turns and comes to benefit others is meant to be some kind of a spiritual thing of spiritual import. It may well be that he's tying it together with the ultimate end of this psalm in which these matters of the dividing of the garments and the casting of lots for the clothing is said to have taken place. Is that the result of all of that is that from all the points of the compass blessings will come, benefits will come. Come from whom? Come from where? Come from the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And even the beginning of it is just these soldiers, employees of the Roman government being used in his execution and yet Jesus takes those who are his oppressors and says benefits come to you, blessings come to you the seamless robe that's been viewed in all kinds of ways in the history of the church I think it was first uh, Cyprian an early church father who drew attention to the unity of the people of God here's something they can't divide up you can't give it to four people you can't give it to the east, west and north and south because it's a unified whole and there's something about the garments of Jesus was, was pictures a unified whole and in fact there's something in the garments of Jesus that were meant to correlate with the garments of the high priest in the Old Testament you do have something of his garments picturing the unity of, his pe- of the people whom he represents as you remember, in the garments of the high priest was the breastplate in which were inscribed on, on stones the names of the tribes. And in the onyx stone on the ephod, six names of tribes on one shoulder, six names of tribes on the other shoulder, the priest was the point of the unity of the people of God. The point of the unity of all the tribes. And that may, be, may well be that that's what the seamless robe was intending to picture is that there's the unity of the people who receive the benefits of the cross. Those who come into the orbit of Christ's work and receive the benefits of of, of his being stripped of everything, of his being impoverished, we become rich by that which he willingly gave up, he willingly lost, that we might gain. And we all gain from the same Lord, the same garment, the same body, the same blood, the same benefits that come from the same work of the, of the one Savior. And maybe that's what the seamless tunic that you couldn't tear apart, they wouldn't tear apart, have no value if it's torn apart. In the sense in which the church diminishes in value when we're not at one, when God's people are not seeking to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of the peace, will never have any kind of impact on the world because 
hey, if those guys that profess to know God can't get along, what's the hope of the world? I mean, we're the ones that should be setting some sort of an example of what the power of the gospel brings, what the power of Jesus brings in terms of bringing us into a unity of love and a unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But anyway, whether that's true or not, I think there's something to be said for the fact that John's wanting to tell us that Jesus being stripped of everything brings benefits to many, brings benefits to the ends of the earth, brings benefits to a unified people of God. The second thing has to do with his mother. Again, making provision for his mother. And we tend to think of it in terms of, well, Jesus is doing the right thing, honoring his father and mother. His mother, father has died. His mother is a widow. His mother needs to be cared for. He gets the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, likely John, and he makes provision for his mother. But you know, he also makes provision for the disciple whom he loved. And, and you know, I was thinking about how John had a mother. Read about John's mother in the Gospels. That was the mother that went up to Jesus and said, Lord, make my sons to be your chief ministers, the right hand and the left hand, when you enter into your kingdom. Uh, man, there's a woman who pampered her sons and wanted what for her sons, wanted glory for her sons. Why not? And my sons. <laughs> Good Jewish mother wants the best for her sons. We can sympathize with that. But Mary was a mother too. And she knew what it was to experience loss. Because she knew something of the destiny that was in the life of her son. Simeon, I believe, had mentioned it to him. This one is appointed for the for the the loss and the rising of, of many in Israel, words to that effect. There was the sword that pierced her heart. There was the, the harboring these things in her heart. There was, um, and, and there's something to be said for the fact that Mary, having had some intimation of the end of it for Jesus, that in fact this one would come to do something for the world that wouldn't be externally glorious. It wouldn't be something that a mother would really want for her son to go to the cross and die is really the example of a mother who put the things of God's kingdom before her own interests and is an example of real humility. Again, I think of the Magnificat in which Mary defines herself as the Lord's handmaid. Just a simple servant. I mean, she's not the queen of heaven, folks. I mean, she's the simple servant of the Lord. She's the humble Jewish woman who was an exemplar of a mob, of a mother, in the way she viewed herself, her relationship to God, and her usefulness in the service of God. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And very much like the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Mary speaks of the humble estate of the servant. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 49, for he was mighty, has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He has shown strength with his arm. Verse 51, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Put down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. Mary knew the value of humility. She knew the value of kingdom ethics. She knew the value of taking a man like John who probably thought, I'm born to some form of greatness. And she would be able to tell him what... Jeremiah through uh, said to Baruch in uh, Jeremiah 45 you seek great things for yourself seek them not you're not infinite for great things for yourself that your eyes are not to be haughty your aspirations are not to be self-willed self-interested, self-honoring self-praising it's enough to be humble servants of the most high God what a perfect mother for a man like John so it wasn't just he's looking to make provision for Mary. He's looking to make provision for John. But you know what Jesus is doing? In the light of his death, is he's forging new realities. He's forging new relationships. He's forging a new humanity. He's forging a transformation of all things. And it begins in his death. And it leads to relationships of life in the church in which things become new and different. 
and somehow relationships in the church of mothers mothering immature sons who need to learn the lessons of a mature Christian woman even makes a mother in Israel to be more valuable to the hearts and lives of many Christians than your own mothers who perhaps didn't walk with the Lord and didn't walk in wisdom and lived lives of folly. But God gives us other mothers who teach us and who instruct us and who nurture us and who encourage us and who build us up. And these are the relationships we bear within the kingdom of God. And right from the cross, Jesus is telling John and Mary, this new relationship is going to form and it's going to be you ministering to each other in ways that you need to be ministered to. Whether Mary and the fact that she was a widow woman who needed the care of someone to provide for her, or whether it was John who had a nurturing that didn't really prize humility too much, son of thunder, and all of the rest, would learn the ways of God and the ways of his grace through the eyes of his spiritual mother Mary, who would show him how to live life in a bit of different way embodying the kingdom principles and not the principles of the kingdom of the world well folks those are my thoughts where John has led in the crucifixion narrative at least up to this point we have two more to go but we're not going to do them this morning thank you for being patient and listening to the exposition this morning I hope it's been helpful hope it's been encouraging let's go to the Lord in prayer Father we're thankful that we can consider the amazing display of your wonders and grace and and Jesus as we look at John's account of the crucifixion we pray that these things that we have spoken about this morning would not be confusing but would be clarifying we pray that these would be things that would be encouraging to each one of us that Lord we would in our relationships with each other provide ministry and and help that would be the fruit of redemptive relationships, not just how the people of the world carry on friendships, but how saints of God seek one another's good and how saints of God seek one another's encouragement and walking in the ways of, 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 a, of a heavenly kingdom. We're thankful for the blessings that you freely give us, all coming at the expense of Christ being made poor, everything stripped from him, that we would be possessors of every good. Lord, for these matters of of blessing, we bless and praise your name. ask that you'd help us to think these things through, help us to give, give us understanding in them, help us to walk in their light, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.